Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, your award-winning Texas history podcast. I'm your host, Ken Wise. Thank you very much for loving the state of Texas and for tuning in for a little bit of Texas history. Well, this podcast uh, is the 80th regular episode. I've had some bonus episodes, but this is the 80th regular episode, so I'm very excited about that. This episode is being released in March of 2020. And we are in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. Now, I don't know when you're going to listen to this episode, but people years from now, if they do hear this episode, will know the coronavirus pandemic of 2020 as history, and I'm curious what they'll think. But we are right smack in the middle of it, and in an effort to preserve a little bit of what's going on at the time, I will tell you that we are under... In the state of Texas, we are under an emergency order that has prevented uh, restaurants and bars from being open to large groups. Uh, Takeout service is available. People are under work-from-home orders, including the Court of Appeals on which I now sit. We are working from home to the extent possible. Uh, Luckily, we are online, so the court system continues to function, at least at the appellate level. Uh, But everybody is um, buying lots of uh, groceries from the grocery store. There seems to be a run on certain items. The obvious ones, hand sanitizer, soaps, uh, uh, disinfectant wipes. The not-so-obvious ones, um, toilet paper. (laughs) Not sure why everybody's buying that. But anyway, there's a little rundown on where we're at as I record this episode. But this episode is also being released between the 184th anniversary of the fall of the Alamo and the 184th anniversary of the Goliad Massacre. So we are also right in the middle of the high holy days of Texas history. And it has been incredibly busy. As regular listeners of this podcast know, I'm now teaching a history and government class at Houston Baptist University, which has been incredibly fun very rewarding. It's been a ton of work. Um, I've had the privilege of hosting a couple of events at Houston Baptist University uh, where I got to interview some very interesting people live. One was author Stephen Harrigan in connection with his new book, Big Wonderful Thing, released last year in 2019 to great acclaim. And uh, we brought him to Houston Baptist and that was a lot of fun. And I've gotten to interview him a couple of times about that book. It's been great. Another was TV personality Brian Kilmeade, who is not from Texas and not really a historian uh, by training, but has written a book um, called Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, which is an interesting uh, book and a good attempt on the part of somebody not from Texas to spread the word about the story of the Texas Revolution 184 years ago when the Georgia Barber Bush Foundation in Houston Baptist were nice to invite me to conduct that interview. I've presented a paper at the Texas State Historical Association annual meeting, which was fun and thankfully was not canceled, uh, occurred before this coronavirus outbreak. Uh, that paper discussed the court of the District of Brazos, which is uh, something I'll do for an episode. I've mentioned it a couple of times in different episodes, uh, but that, pu- that paper will be published in the Texas Supreme Court Historical Society Journal this summer, so you can look for that. 
Um, so my workload uh, on the history front has definitely been testing my love of Texas history, but we're making it. And I'm going to meet uh, in the middle of this pandemic. I'm going to meet with some Texas Historical Commission folks and see if there's some way we can work together on creating some content. Because a lot of uh, the Texas uh, State has, or the Texas Historical Commission State Historic sites are currently closed, uh, but hopefully we'll be reopening very, very soon. Well, um, so since we're in the middle of the 184th anniversary of the Texas Revolution. Today we're going to talk about a topic related to the Texas Revolution. And uh, you've heard me say many times when we do talk about the Texas Revolution just how kind of ragtag the Texas Army was. These guys grabbed whatever rifle they had, their knives, they didn't have any uniforms, hopefully they had a hat, and they headed toward Sam Houston and the Army when the Revolution began. They barely had any discipline. And how in the world were they going to compete with the Mexican army? And they especially lacked one important item, and that was artillery. The Alamo cannons, of course, were captured. Fannin either dumped his cannon or got him captured. The Texas army was in trouble. But the good people of Cincinnati, Ohio, in the name of liberty, came through for Texas. They sent two of the most important pieces of metalwork that have ever been shipped to Texas, two cannons used at the Battle of San Jacinto and then disappeared. This is the story of the Twin Sisters. Let's begin this story during the second week of March 1836. That's when Sam Houston traveled to Gonzales to take over command of the Texas Army. Now, the Alamo had already fallen, and they knew the Alamo had fallen, but they didn't understand exactly what had happened until during this same time, Susanna Dickinson, her infant child, and William Barrett Travis's slave Joe appeared on the scene to describe what had happened at the Alamo. So immediately, Houston ordered the Army to begin a retreat toward the United States. And the citizens dropped what they were doing, literally, and began to run away. And then we call that the runaway scrape as they grabbed what they could and fled the advancing Mexican army. Word was also sent out for volunteers um, to join the army, which did occur as Houston took the army to the east. Houston reached the Colorado, and of course, every there's a lot of documents and a lot of letters talking about a general expectation that Houston would entrench at the Colorado and engage with Santa Ana there. The Colorado, you'll hear it described in 1836 as the edge of the settlements. And so the Colorado was thought to be a defensible line. Houston, of course, did not do that. And as it became clear that he was not going to fight on the Colorado, you had a lot of people that actually left the army. And um, so that the size of the army was greatly in flux during this time. While all this is going on, the people of Cincinnati, Ohio, were holding meetings to discuss the Texas question. The good people of Cincinnati decided they wanted to aid Texas in her fight for liberty. So they had a meeting, and they formed a committee, and they decided that they could help the cause of Texas independence by sending what they called hollowware to the Texas Army. In other words, cannons. 
So the group came to be known as the Texas Committee or the Friends of Texas. And there was a guy in Cincinnati who owned some land in Texas named Nicholas Klopper. And so he certainly had an interest in Texas independence and um, keeping the settlers there. So there was a resolution offered by the committee to support Texas. So the cannons they were going to send were forged. And you see all kinds of names. And this is one of those examples of where history gets quoted and misquoted and differently quoted, etc. But um, the sources all say that uh, the firm of Chase and Seymour forged the cannons or at least assisted in the forging of the cannons that another firm named Hawkins and Tatum might have might have done the initial forging. Uh, there, I saw the name of a blacksmith and um, carriage manufacturer named Bruncia Cassette or Casse, who may have made the carriages. And then another man named Greenwood, who owned another forging company, made um, some ammunition for the cannons. So, whomever made them, however they were made, uh, they made their way to Texas. And they were received at New Orleans by one of the agents for Texas uh, named William Bryan. And his, he wrote a letter to the governor and to the general council, the provisional government of Texas. And he wrote this letter in March. And he notified the government that he had received the two cannons from Cincinnati, that he had uh, officially received them in the name of Texas and presented the thanks and gratitude to the government to the members of the committee from Cincinnati. So that was all good. Uh, The schooner Pennsylvania shipped the guns from New Orleans to Texas, and they arrived at the port in Velasco in late March. And here's where a story allegedly occurred that named, ended up naming the cannons the Twin Sisters. They were members of the Rice family. A New Orleanian named Charles Rice had twin daughters, Eleanor and Elizabeth, They were eight years old. Rice was a doctor, and he ended up um, eventually moving to Texas permanently. But uh, apparently the cannon got off the boat, and so did these little eight-year-old twin girls. And so the citizens assembled, excited, obviously, for the receipt of the cannons, asked the girls to make a speech to kind of commemorate the occasion um, and sort of present the cannons to Texas, which they did. And... Someone reportedly said, there, are, there they are, two sets of twin sisters, meaning the actual Rice sisters as well as the Cannons. Now, there aren't any sources for that story. It's a good story. But uh, the Rice family definitely uh, records that story as part of their family history. Uh, the first time we see the term in official uh, Texas documentation is a letter from President Burnett to the committee in Cincinnati thanking them for the cannons. And that letter was written after San Jacinto in July of 1836, and he calls them the Twin Sisters. Um, Sam Houston also called them the Twin Sisters. Uh, He actually gave a speech to the U.S. Senate in 1859 where he refers to the six-pound cannons uh, as being called the Twin Sisters. So however they got the name, that's what they were called. And off they went to find the Texas Army. They actually put the cannon, left the cannons on the Pennsylvania and sailed back to Galveston. They transferred the cannons to the schooner Flash. We talked about the schooner Flash in episode 51 and its service 
to Texas. One of the things that it did, of course, very significant was shipping these cannons. So the Flash took the uh, cannon to Morgan's Point, James Morgan's Plantation, the town of New Washington, which was there on the point. And they were then loaded onto the Ohio for a trip up Buffalo Bayou to Harrisburg. They arrived at Harrisburg and were loaded onto ox carts and sent to the Brazos River to uh, meet Houston and the Army, which they did at Jared Gross's plantation on April 11th, 1836. And you can bet that the Army was overjoyed to receive these cannons. Now, at this time, Houston had camped uh, had camped at uh, across the river across the, on the west side of the Brazos from Gross's plantation. He crossed the Brazos on the Yellowstone, knowing that the river's height would make it impossible to do so later, and by doing so, left uh, the river, the rising river, between he and Santa Ana's army. And he took the opportunity while in this area to train the army and try to instill some discipline. And then when they crossed to Gross's plantation, they received the cannon. So things were certainly looking up, although there was still considerable tension around the fact that Sam Houston was in the perception of those that were wanting to fight. Houston was retreating rather than standing strong against the Mexican army. So they get the cannons, and uh, it's well known, and I'm sure well known to many listeners of this podcast, that the spring of 1836 was a very wet spring, and it was raining and muddy, and moving these heavy cannons were not easy. They had uh, Houston had borrowed a team of oxen from a lady named Pamelia Mann on the condition that he was taking the army and these cannons, and therefore Miss Mann's oxen, to Natchitoches, Louisiana, and not to fight Santa Ana at San Jacinto, she expressly said, you can have my oxen, but only if you're taking the Nacogdoches Road or the Natchitoches Road and not the Harrisburg Road. Well, of course, the army turned toward Harrisburg and eventually San Jacinto. Pamelia Man catches up, demands her oxen back. Houston realizes he needs the oxen to pull his cannon and tells her so. She doesn't care. She pulls her knife out, cuts the oxen free, and takes them back to her place. The funny part of that story, and I've covered this in a prior episode about Palmelia Man, but the funniest part of that story is a guy named Rohrer, who was the wagon master for the Texas Army, said, I'll go get those oxen, and Houston warned him not to do it. So Rohrer showed up a little while later with his shirt ripped to shreds and no oxen. Anyway, they managed to get the cannons down, uh, and it ended up at San Jacinto. They had to float them across Buffalo Bayou on rafts made from the boards of Isaac Batterson's house. Uh, I remind the listeners there's no record of Mrs. Batterson's reaction to uh, contributing her floorboards to the cause of Texas, but one can only speculate. Cannons were put into service on the field. They were placed in the center of the battle line and assisted the Texas Army in that 18-minute route of the Mexican Army. There was a narrative of the battle written by an individual who was in the um, across the river from the battle, a guy named Robert Hancock Hunter, and he talked about hearing the cannon fire and how the Mexican cannons were louder. And he, he talked about, uh, he says, about 3 o'clock in the evening of the 21st, we heard a cannon fire and another and another, three in succession. And then they stopped. And then he says something funny. About two minutes, 
Another fired, and the little twin sisters commenced. They popped like popcorn in an oven, and we could hear the small arms very plain. Well, 18 minutes later, after those popcorn cannon were done firing, Texas had won her independence. So what happened to the twin sisters? Well, that's a little bit of a mystery, and we're going to examine that mystery in part two of this episode on the twin sisters. Now we come to the part of the episode I call getting there, and I uh, wanted to I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode that all the state historic sites are currently closed. This episode's coming out in March of 2020. Uh, by the time you hear this, maybe they'll be reopened. We certainly hope they will. But the San Jacinto Battleground is a place that every lover of Texas should go, no matter what your interest in actual history is. That's the place where the twin sisters sat on that field, popping like popcorn, and contributed significantly to Texas independence. I also found the old Chase and Seymour foundry in Cincinnati. It's described in an 1800s article as being on the north side of 5th Street between Elm and Plum. Well, according to my map, that's now the site of the Duke Energy Convention Center in Cincinnati. So if you go to a convention in Cincinnati at the Duke Energy Convention Center, be sure and tip your hat to the fact that that piece of ground contributed very significantly to the cause of Texas independence. Well, that wraps it up for part one of this episodes on the Twin Sisters. In part two, we'll examine what happened to the Twin Sisters to the extent we can determine it. Please give the show a follow on Instagram and Twitter at Wise About Texas. Go and like and share the Wise About Texas Facebook page. And for those of you who are hearing this episode during the actual coronavirus situation, Shoot me an email, host at wiseabouttexas.com, and uh, I'll let you know some good Texas history books to read while you're in quarantine. Thanks again for tuning in to Wise About Texas. Go out and do something for Texas today. And until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.